T.S. Eliot says it in The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. We're going to talk about growing old and growing older and older and older because Americans are going to be doing that in greater and greater number, it does appear. My three guests are all specialists in the psychology, the physiology, and for that matter, the pathology of aging. Two of them are physicians. Daniel Brauner, Brauner rather, is the proper pronunciation, is professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, director of the Geriatrics Fellowship Program, uh, and with many interests that we will shortly expose as we continue our conversation. Joshua Hauser, uh, MD, is instructor in medicine and palliative care at Northwestern University's Bueller Center on Aging. And Jay Olshansky, an old friend of ours, is a PhD sociology type who is professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago School of Public Health. I started with uh, one quotation from T.S. Eliot. Here's another from, um, of all people, Tom Stoppard, you know, the British uh, dramatist or playwright, who says quite directly, it's an epigram uh, in its uh, conciseness, age is a high price to pay for maturity. There's something to that. Uh, you, you grow mature, you finally understand a little bit more about life, but by then the bones get creaky and the arthritis comes on. Um, would it be nice if somehow you could um, start old and grow younger? Some, some writers have played with that as a conceit about a way of reorganizing human existence. Right, if only I knew what I knew now when I was younger. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of people think that. And, and uh, it'd be nice if that could be, but I think it's, it's the, the process of getting old that, that gives you all those things, so it'd be difficult to reverse that. Let us come directly to it, uh, both physiologically and psychologically. What is aging? What do we understand about uh, the changes that the body goes through and that the mind goes through, the mind being a function of particular organs of the body, especially the brain and the central nervous system? What happens to make us older, to make us aging? We get older chronologically, inevitably, but why do all of those changes come along together with the chronological extension? Joshua Hauser. Well, it's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, the... We ask only complicated questions oh, uh, on this program. <laughs> naturally. Um, I mean, there are processes. Dementia is one. Uh, Alzheimer's disease as a kind of dementia is, uh, is an example of this, uh, where the body and the mind, in that case, uh, have, you know, slowly uh, lose their capacity. Um, there are physical ailments, um, whether of the heart, whether of cancer, whether of pulmonary disease, whether of, you mentioned the bones, whether of osteoporosis and the diseases like that, um, that essentially have to do with, uh, uh, you know, developing pathology of bone and of cells and of, you know, yeah, and but, of but, organs. But is, it, but is it not the case, have I been misinformed in my uh, layman's reading, that there are some species, not human beings, maybe not the high mammals generally, but perhaps among the fish or elsewhere, some species that don't really age the way we do, that the cells don't go through that same 
a process of transformation and deterioration. Well, there are a couple of species, uh, rockfish, for example, and lobsters, that appear, at least on the surface, not to age. To us, but maybe to another lobster. <laughs> well, they may <laughs> be an old-looking lobster. <laughs> but the fact is, actually, that you can't measure, first of all, you can't measure biological age in these organisms, but what they do is when they pull them out, they, they actually get some idea of how old they are, uh, based on certain attributes of these mm -hmm. organisms. And then their other physiological attributes remain the same no matter what age they appear to be. And how old do they live if they're not caught and, and devoured by human beings? Well, we're not, we're not quite sure. There's some uh, that I think have been documented to live well over 100 years. Yeah. We know whales can live over 200 years. And they're mammals. So Certain they're, turtles do as well. Don't turtles they? can live 150 years uh, as well. So clearly there's great variation across And species. in whales and in those long-lived turtles, is there no sign of the aging process that humans go through? Yes, there is the sign uh, of the aging process, as far as I can tell, in every species that we've looked at. Some, now, there's great variations. These, these rockfish and lobsters don't go through quite the same changes that we do, but among all mammals, it pretty much looks the same. No, I think one of the things that we need, you need to, to uh, focus on here is that sort of looking at the differences between uh, normal aging and disease. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we try to do as geriatricians to tease out those two things because they're very different. So what, what, would the, the, what would a person look like if he just grew old? And then what's the, di what, what's the difference between that and what a person looks like who has disease superimposed on that? And, and, and sometimes it's not that easy to differentiate because older people tend to accumulate diseases. And so they have just they tend to have more diseases. And so really slicing out what's the disease and what's the normal aging process I think uh, can be very difficult and sometimes is is you know something that we sort of create these sort of um, um, paradigms in terms of well this will treat as a disease and this will treat as normal aging. The average age of Americans these days that is uh, the longevity average longevity is what 76 or 77 there about? Yeah it's in the high 70s women actually have a life expectancy of just over 80 now yeah. so it's... And the average longevity in uh, modern-day Russia is what? Oh, goodness. I it's think in the it's, 50s, isn't it? No, no, I don't think it's quite that low, but I, my guess is it's in the low 70s, high 60s. And it's I've been seen dropping. a figure like 58 or something. Well, it, the interesting thing is it's, it's been dropping in, in parts of, uh, of Russia. It's been dropping in sub-Saharan Africa because of HIV-AIDS. Yeah. Whenever you have high death rates at middle or younger ages, you get this rather rapid drop in life expectancy. It's not very easy to bring it back up. Is it also the case that when it comes to these age statistics that demographers work up for us, that the average uh, uh, length of life in any given locale is much influenced by the, um, the degree of infant mortality? It was historically. I mean, life expectancy in the United States in 1900 was about 47. Ex uh, extraordinarily high infant mortality. Once that dropped, we had a 30-year quantum leap in life expectancy in a single century. But now we're in a situation but where it's it, If you discounted persons who died in the first year of life, then life expectancy would have been much longer. It, it, uh, well, but certainly not where we are today. Yeah. I mean, we clearly had large declines in death rates, even at middle and older ages in the latter half of the 20th century. Well, it's rather nice to know that we live longer. Do we live well as we live longer? Well, I think some people are. Um, I think one of the things we're, we're trying to um, pay attention to now is quality of life and, and what is, you know, what is quality, is it, are we, are we uh, helping people to have um, a good quality of life in terms of, um, you know, optimizing what we can. Uh, well then what are the afflictions that come with age? One lovely little line from someplace 
in the world of poetry, I don't remember where, is Great Caesar's bust is on the shelf, and I don't feel so good myself. As one gets older, one runs into pathologies, which uh, I've got pathologies in my knees, that mm -hmm. is, arthritic knees. In fact, I've had two arthritic knees um, transformed metallically. I've now got uh, New knees. better knees than I had <laughs> a few years ago. Uh -huh. But I hope my mind is still fairly functional. But we know that the great danger is that you will get deterioration in cognitive capacity and in and proneness, greater proneness to all sorts of diseases. Ultimately, one disease or another kills you. Uh, the pathologies that go with morbidity or go with aging is what we need to discuss. Yeah. And the possibility that those pathologies can be controlled, reduced, altered, even reversed. Mm -hmm. And we'll proceed with that as we look at the prospects for those who are aging in our society. In conversation with doctors Daniel Brauner, Joshua Hauser, and Jay Olshansky. Continuing after this. And we are talking tonight about age and aging and the burdens of aging and uh, the relief of the burdens of aging. Uh, our guests are all deeply involved in uh, the, the arts and, and the science of geriatrics and gerontology. Uh, they are Daniel Brauner, who is professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, where he directs the geriatrics fellowship program. Uh, Joshua Hauser, who is uh, in the Department of Medicine and Palliative Care at Northwestern University's Bueller Center on Aging. And Jay Olshansky, who is Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Illinois' uh, Chicago uh, School of Public Health. No other than, no less a figure than Johann, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, for whom they named the street in Chicago, which here we pronounce Goethe, <laughs> uh, said, the older we grow, the greater become the ordeals. That's not a profound, uh, he's had more profound comments than that, but it is a Certainly an accurate comment, growing older means you run into physical and other kinds of problems. What are the leading uh, morbid accompaniments, accompaniments of aging in our world, in America these days? I'd say one of the uh, biggest ones is uh, osteoarthritis, mm -hmm. um, which is, um, people call it the wear and tear disease, but rheumatologists get upset about that. Um, it's um, it's a more complicated. It's uh, changes in the cartilage and then um, other changes in the joint um, which lead to um, uh, functional loss and pain I think is what what I've already confessed people... it I've suffered that though I'm still terribly young uh, or would like to think of myself as such but as I grew older my knees began to get creaky and then got, got painful and finally I had to get surgery and so I got titanium in there instead of ordinary bone, which works rather well. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of people have gotten tremendous relief with uh, yeah. joint replacements. Now, the very common problem with women as they age, uh, osteoporosis. Though men get osteoporosis as well, don't they? Right. That's a similar affliction. Yeah, but men usually get it later and yeah. not as severe. Now, the, the killer diseases, that is hypertension and, and, um, and heart disease, and for that matter, of course, cancer, all of those are correlated with growing older, are they not? Those all are. They all increase with age, and as I think Dr. Bronner said before, often come in bunches. So there are people whom I take care of at Northwestern in the hospital, on our palliative care unit, in our, in our hospice program, who often are afflicted with both cancer and heart disease and osteoarthritis, and um, their things come all at once often um, as, as, as we all age. Yeah, but actually, I'd like to add something because 
because you know you started out by asking a, a question about what goes wrong, and there's always a tendency to associate aging with decline, with mm -hmm. things that get worse. And interestingly enough, I started out my class this semester, asking the you know talking about this issue with the students, uh, and I said you know not everything gets worse, not everything declines as we grow older. Mm -hmm. And one young student raised her hand and said, well, like what? You know, what gets better? And there are a whole host of things that get better. So we shouldn't just associate aging with decline and loss of function. There are a large number of attributes of aging that actually get better. Robert Browning, the great English poet, in the opening lines of Rabbi Ben Ezra, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. Our life is in his hands who said a whole I planned, youth shows but half. So the second half is going to pay off in larger ways than the first half. Under did. the right conditions, certainly, if we can maintain our mental and physical functioning for a long time period, making it out past your 70s, 80s, 90s mm -hmm. can be a remarkable and enjoyable but experience. I, there's the rub. What about mental vigor and the maintenance of mental acuity, uh, of cognitive competence? We are increasingly the disease that everyone talks about and is very afraid of is Alzheimer's. Who was the original Alzheimer who named the syndrome? Uh, Lois Alzheimer was a, uh, <clears throat> a pathologist um, and physician in the uh, turn of the century who uh, described the first woman with, um, with Alzheimer's disease, uh, a young woman who had uh, lost her cognitive ability and, and found the microscopic uh, findings that we now know, uh, know as classic Alzheimer's disease. Isn't it quite likely that some of the classifications or diagnoses of Alzheimer's, in fact, are mistaken, that there are many roots to senescence? and to cognitive decline. And the structural changes that underlie Alzheimer's may not be the only source of that cognitive decline. Right. Um, when we say dementia, that's, that includes um, all the different causes for dementia, the, the main ones are Alzheimer's disease, and the, the other one that's almost as common is called vascular dementia. And this can be thought of as, as many small strokes, which um, mm -hmm. in combination lead to cognitive Whereas decline. what happens at the cellular level in Alzheimer's? In the, at the cellular level, there's a dropout of cells, um, is, is, and the decrease in the neurotransmitters is, is probably what's responsible for the, the cognitive problems that people have and, and functional problems as well. There are also things called neurofibrillary tangles and plaques, mm -hmm. and the exact pathology and, and are, those, are those just remnants of the, of the dying cells, and are they actually the, the pathological agents, or are those just sort of epiphenomena, things we see along with the other changes, is not entirely clear. Now, what, uh, let me turn to Jay on this because he's a specialist in epidemiology. What indeed is the epidemiology of these cognitive uh, pathologies in older uh, persons in the United States these days? Well, actually, you're, that's outside of my area of expertise. I don't, I don't study uh, Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. uh, but clearly I study what it is that contributes to duration of life and longevity. And we know that th roughly three of every four people are going to uh, die from heart disease, cancer, and stroke. I think the interesting question related to this is, what happens if we succeed in finding a cure for heart disease, cancer, and stroke? Is that going to dramatically increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? I mean, wh what's going to happen if we succeed? Oh, I, I with age is, mm -hmm. you know, probably the, the strongest risk factor for developing dementia. And... Um, 
if people live to be the older you get, the the higher the risk. And so I think if people live really long times, the, the risk for Alzheimer's will go way well, up. So. Is it not already observed and argued by some who interpret the available uh, health uh, data that the increase in Alzheimer's is a direct consequence of the extension of longevity? I think that's a big part of it. Part of it, too, is the way we reconceptualize the disease. Mm. In the um, 70s, um, when in the late 70s, mid-70s when I was in medical school, the only disease we, we called Alzheimer's disease was actually pre-senile dementia. So if you developed dementia in your 40s or 50s, you would be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Whereas if you became um, senile or demented later on, that was seen as, they called it, hardening of the arteries or senility and was not called Alzheimer's disease. And it was really um, sort of a political battle uh, led by uh, people who, uh, Robert Butler for one, who, who decided that, that this was not sort of, senility was not normal aging because that's what people thought of it as and that this was actually the same disease that we were seeing early on but just in older people. The great payoff question, I pose this even as we pause to take care of some commercials. Look forward to your answers directly after those commercials. What progress are we making with regard to holding back the ravages of these killer diseases? That is, of heart disease, of uh, high blood pressure that, uh, as a disease, of cancer as a disease, and of uh, senile dementia, if not a disease that kills, at least a disease that wrecks the plausibility and the value of life if you go on living with that kind of reduction to a kind of profound senility. Are we making progress towards cure or towards significant palliation or even prevention? We'll, I shall look forward to your reassuring news on uh, those questions after we pause for these words. And we return to our expert panel for the evening focused on the question of aging and the diseases that go with aging and to strike an optimistic note, the extension of longevity, which may or may not have happened, may or may not happen in the future, we'll talk about that shortly, and the attempt to deal both preventively and palliatively with the diseases that are ultimately the killer diseases, and before they kill, make life rather miserable. That is to say, heart disease and hypertension and cancer, and of course, the diseases of senescent decline, Alzheimer's and others. So what progress are we in fact making? Joshua Hauser. Well, we, I think we have made significant progress in, in heart disease in terms of uh, helping people lower their cholesterol, helping people with their hypertension, which has reduced the rates of, uh, of heart attacks that people have gotten and has delayed the age at which people get heart attacks. Um, also now, are like you talking about preve uh, preventing by uh, lifestyle measures or are you talking about drug uh, regimens? Um, certainly some of the former certainly some lifestyle measures, mm -hmm. but it's mostly been in the recent decade, the medications have yeah. been much more powerful in helping people lower cholesterol as an example. Um, the obesity trend somehow mit mitigates against that to some extent. I, I the fact take, that we're growing fatter. You right. Mean. I, I want to take you up, though, on the issue of, of palliation, which is, which is my field, um, and palliative care, which I think we've made very significant progress on. That doesn't change people's lifespan, but I think we've done much better uh, as a society in terms of helping people with their comfort, with their quality of life, with palliation their dignity. Palliation is, is living with it more effectively. Palliation is living with symptoms is support for people when there's not necessarily a cure mm. for what's underlying. Yeah. Um, and well, in, in which of those disease categories have we had the greatest palliative success? 
Well, traditionally, palliative care in hospice has been most common for cancer. That has mm -hmm. been the kind of the, the paradigm for the hospice movement. Um, but in, in the recent decade, we've really tried very aggressively uh, here at Northwestern, as well as many other places, to expand our, uh, our treatment of other diseases that result in decreased life, so heart disease and strokes and dementia, um, recognizing that those are illnesses that have significant suffering associated with them. And so there are things we can do for people's physical symptoms, for their psychological suffering, and really for their families, um, even when we can't, as I said, reverse what's going on underneath. So I think both for cancers as well as for other chronic diseases, we have made but progress. Crucial question, are we or are we not, in terms of our total medical culture in the Western world? Are we or are we not uh, reducing the likelihood of uh, or the time of onset of heart disease and of cancer and increasing the likelihood of treating or at least uh, moderating the ravaging effects of those diseases so that they will kill people and thereby extending the lifespan? Oh, m most definitely. I, you know, as Josh said, hypertension and uh, heart disease, I think, you know, we've in lowering cholesterol have really markedly um, um, extended, I think, the, the age of onset of those of, of heart disease, especially. Um, diabetes now is we have a much many more drugs in our armamentarium to, so that we can control diabetes much more tightly, um, controlling sugars so that people don't um, experience uh, the ravages of, of living with, high, you know, diabetes. Now that brings us then to a question that I know Jay Olshansky has paid a great deal of attention to in his own scholarly work, and that is, can we really increase the longevity? And is there no limit to how far we can go in increasing the average age? Well, oh boy, that's a softball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've, you know, we've experienced these large increases in recent years, uh, certainly very large increases were at the beginning of the 20th century. We've suggested in our research, we think uh, female life expectancy can go up to about 88 male life expectancy about 82. To go beyond that, we've argued it's going to have to, uh, it's going to require modifying the basic biological process of aging itself. Distinguishing, as you had said earlier, distinguishing between the diseases that are associated with aging and the basic biological process. It means f fundamentally focusing in on something different than what we're talking about now. It's one thing to go after reducing the risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. It's another thing to try to slow down the basic process itself. And, and I think that, that that's certainly possible at some time in the future. It's not currently possible. And it's only under those conditions, I think, that we can push beyond the limit of about 88 for women and 82 for men. My elder uncle, Ben, lived to the age of 98. His yes. younger brother, my father, lived to the age of 95. That would suggest, well, how does well, that happen? Well, uh, well, remember, when we're That's talking about... That's far beyond the average limit that you've already well, indicated but, to be like. But you use the right word, average. When we talk yeah. about a life expectancy of 88 for women, for example, that means that half of all the babies born in a year in which life expectancy is 88 are going to have to live past the age of 92, half of them. So you're going to get a lot of making it out past the 100 and perhaps even 105 and 110. So you're going to see rather dramatic, rapid increases in the size of the nonagerians, the 90-year-olds, and the cent centenarians in the coming decades. It is inevitable. Now, Jay, you know that there are some people working in the legitimate precincts of medical research who are making claims that their 
they've made some discoveries or some things are now visible and potentially possible, which suggests that lifespan might be extended, not another grudging half decade or two over the next 50 years, but might be extended within 100 years to hundreds of years. That well, you might get people who will live to 200 or 250. Well, it makes for great science fiction, I, I think. Is uh, it pure science fiction? Well, right now it is. I mean, I, I think what they're talking about is the development of technologies that do not currently exist. For example, nanotechnology, some, mm -hmm. something that is intended to, to uh, essentially create a set of conditions where organisms are placed inside the body, and they're actually suggesting that you can reverse many of the changes that occur with the passage of time. Uh, but this is something that, that, that isn't here now. So when you talk about uh, future technology, when you talk about something that doesn't exist, you can speculate about anything. And that's what they're doing. They're speculating about life expectancies of 100 or 200, and it's fine. I mean, I wouldn't even stop there. Why stop at 100 or 200? Why not go to 500 or 1,000? Or, or why not talk about immortality? But those who have lived 900 years. 969, yeah, <laughs> to be well, What good is living when no gal will give it to no man? <laughs> it's 900 years. Well, I mean, I think those people are speaking to, uh, you know, a, a craving, you know, a, a human um, craving of, you know, living immortality. I mean, that's... People are really scared of dying, and, and um, they latch on to the idea that the, their lives can be uh, extended indefinitely. There's a great deal of power in the message of telling people what they want to hear. Right. And in this particular case, we want to hear that we can live forever, or at least much longer than it is currently the case. And I think that's the origin of much of this, uh, what I consider to be largely nonsense about these life expectancies of 150 or 200. Quite frankly, I would be ecstatic if we could achieve a 10-year increase in life expectancy from where we are today. It would require enormous changes. In Boy, we have behavior. achieved that as compared to 50 years ago, have we? No, not? I mean from now. There's yeah. a big difference yeah. between raising life expectancy from 80 to, to 90 than from 70 to 80. It requires uh -huh. an entirely different set of, of changes and conditions. How so? Well, think of it this way. When, when you're adding years to life, when life expectancy, let's say, is 50, which was the case in the middle of the century, um, you're adding years of life to, to infants and children, people of middle age. Once you've accomplished that, which is where we are today, the only way to achieve large increases in life expectancy is to add many, many years of life to people who've already lived seven, eight, or nine decades. And for my colleagues here who spend time with uh, centenarians and octogenarians and so forth, you realize it's not so easy to add years of life to these individual individuals. The time period that you add is much smaller. It's not easy to do it via medical routines and medical gimmicks, but it is easy if you've got control over genetics, apparently. <laughs> there are people, after all, who live to be centenarians, and I've known a few who remain rather whole and hearty until finally at the age of... I knew at least one who, at the age of 105, finally sort of conked out one night. Right, I think genes... But he was playing poker with his friends uh, just about two or three nights before that. Right. Genes definitely, you know, have a, a huge role in this, but it's, you know, it's also the environmental effects, too. And, and mm. um, I think a, a big change, and I, I, I think that we're going to see a, po a positive effect of this is just the, the level of activity. I think people used to, I think, 
it was much more common for older people to just sort of sit down and stay there. You know, after you hit a certain age, you you you'd sit on your rocker, and you really there was you didn't have exercise classes for people once you know they were past a certain age. And I think um, one of the things that we've really seen lately is is people are get, some people. I mean, some people aren't obviously, but some people are getting much more active physically, and I think that's going to be does a that really ex- does that really extend longevity. I think that's one of the things that can extend at least quality of life. I think if you're able to keep moving um, and and perhaps longevity, though I don't think that's actually been shown. Um, but I think quality of life, um, if you keep um, uh, active and moving and not sitting in front of the TV, and and I think activity too in terms of of mental activity, I think is another thing that people have of of have found that has mm-hmm. very positive effects on on quality. Remember, future generations of older people in the U.S. and elsewhere are going to be far different than what we see today. I mean, the individuals who are out past 90 and 100 today, you know, they weathered uh, a 20th century filled with infectious diseases, with wars, with very hostile conditions. In the future, you're going to see people making it out into their 90s and past the 100 who've exercised a good portion of their life, who've who've taken good care of themselves, who haven't smoked, you're going to see extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily healthy older people in the coming decades. But you're also going to see the opposite. You're going to see very unhealthy older individuals as well. The extremes are going to be pushed out in the coming decades. People who ordinarily wouldn't have lived into their 80s and 90s, medical technology is going to allow them to do so. So you'll get to see things go wrong you otherwise wouldn't And that, see. of course, raises a great question, which has ethical dimensionality, doesn't it? Watch efforts should we undertake and at what actual cost to extend life for those who are suffering and those who are already significantly debilitated. Uh, the Commission on Bioethics uh, that it was chaired by our friend Leon Cass until his resignation just a few months ago has just issued a major volume concerned with that very question. And I guess the Terry Schiavo case and so much else recently has helped to dramatize the question of when life extension or life maintenance efforts are uh, unwise or even uh, even ill-considered by virtue of the tremendous utilization of, uh, of capacities which might, and of techniques and of instrumentation which might better be used uh, on a triage sort of basis if they were addressed to the problems of other people rather than the one you're trying to maintain far beyond what may be the natural or the proper point uh, in their lives. Uh, we, I think we better discuss that. And we will right after we pause for this. And we return to doctors Joshua Hauser, Daniel Bronner, and Jay Olshansky. Uh, we're talking about aging and the medical approaches to aging. And we are just at the point where we're going to consider the question of whether we are doing too much in trying to maintain and extend the life of those who are already in a rather decreased and debilitated state, whether there's a misuse of medical facilities and, for that matter, of medical talent. Uh, Relevant to that might be an overview of the nature of human existence, as formulated quite some while ago by none other than William Shakespeare. I give you here a reading by John Gilgood of the famous speech on the seven ages of man. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, 
with acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail, unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths, and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good cape and line, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise swords and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice turning again to a childish treble pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. There you have it. If you live long enough, you end, <laughs> you end in second childishness uh, and um, mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans teeth, sans everything. Mm. Should we be keeping people alive as they enter that stage? And should we work to keep them alive even when they are in that stage? Who? Um... You know, I, I, it's it's a really difficult question. I, you know, you brought up the notion of resource allocation, and I mm -hmm. think that's that's one issue that needs to be thought about. Um, quality of life. Um, what is the quality of life for a person who's reached that stage? And also, what's the burden of treatment? I think is another important thing to think about. You know, um, we can keep you alive, but you know, at what price in terms of pain and discomfort? So I think those are all things that need to be considered when when you're um, making sort of treatment plans and goals for for an older patient who may be suffering with with many diseases. Let me press on. So, in a, in uh, although I just want to, yes, I do want to add something. I mean, one one thing that is is uh, has been found is that people, as their quality of life declines, they are more tolerant of lower levels of quality of life. So, in other words, someone like the four of us sitting around this table who have who are up and about may see see a certain stage as intolerable, whereas someone who is a little bit more debilitated may see that stage as uh, as not as as harrowing a quality of life. I can imagine reaching a point where I am debilitated, but still would be saying to those who care, this is let keep it going. This is better than the alternative. That that's exactly right. And again, there there there's studies that show that physicians, for example, overestimate 
um, what are uh, poor qualities of life for people, mm -hmm. and that people have much more tolerance for what we th sometimes think of as a poor quality. Well, I was going to put it directly to both uh, Daniel Bronner and Joshua Hauser, both of whom are physicians dealing with aged populations and maintaining them. Do you ever, in fact, in your own real practice, in your separate institutions, do you come to the point where you discuss with the relatives of some of the old and deeply debilitated people the question of whether to cease maintenance activities? Yes, I, I mean, that that does come up. Um, and if you live long enough, I think that will come up with, with most people. And you've assisted in the making of decisions to let it go. Yes, for definitely. For a particular person. One, one always tries to do it with the patient um, themselves. The patient himself. Yeah, him or herself. I mean, that's that's who you, who should be directing that those kinds of decisions. But often, um, when people get to the the very end that they're no longer able to be involved in the discussion. So yeah, that's they're why they're already demented. They can't mm -hmm. be part of the decision process. Right, really. and that's why it's good to to talk to people about this when they can talk mm -hmm. about it, and then to uh, have them appoint um, what we call durable power of powers of attorney or surrogates who will be able to do what we call substituted judgment, who will make decisions for that person, um, understanding what trying to understand mm -hmm. what they would have wanted in a given situation. And, and that's a very difficult thing for people to do, to, to get into somebody else's head and say, this is what they would have wanted, um, and not what I want for that person. So you are maybe both two a, different you things. You are both involved in conversations which are concerned with assisted dying, in effect. Well, I, I, I guess I, I don't quite think of it in that way. I think of it in the way of being part of conversations and decisions with patients and families uh, as to what we can do to best uh, maintain their comfort and ease their suffering. It's, it's abundantly clear that there are times for patients and for families that being on a ventilator machine, that continuing with dialysis, that continuing with feeding tubes is more, as, hmm. as Dr. Bronner just said, is more of a burden than it is a benefit. How would, I, you, how would you both have felt? In fact, how did, how did all three of you feel mm -hmm. on the highly dramatic public case of Terry Schiavo? What was the right thing to do? Well, it, as, it, as it turns out, I, I think um, it, what we found out in the autopsy um, was that she was you know, severely, severely uh, brain impaired. Um, and so that, that was an important piece of information. Um, and what happened, what should have happened, what did happen ultimately was, you know, her durable power of attorney was her husband made the decision that he thought that at this point she would not have wanted to be kept alive um, with tube feedings, and he was able to make that decision. Um, usually it doesn't, those types of decisions don't get as much press because um, there's usually um, not... You know, f the families aren't usually as um, adversarial about mm -hmm. it. You know, people usually come to agreements. I mean, the the notable thing about the Terry Schiavo case was not the discontinuing of tube feedings, which is a somewhat common occurrence in nursing homes and hospitals throughout this country. But as as we just heard, was the family conflict. Sure. I mean, that was the paramount issue there, which was tragic to see. And I think that the the exercise in that case to best understand what she would have wanted had she been able to speak, which she wasn't able to because of her compromised neurologic state, was what the 15 years of court decisions and battles mm -hmm. were about. Jay Olshansky. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know enough about the details of her particular case to be able to comment on whether it was appropriate to, to remove life support at that time, but I know that there are serious 
ethical and financial issues associated with what happens at the very end of life. And if you add up the cost of medical care at the end, really, if you look at the last week or, or two, uh, under cer certain instances, you know, there may be a, a cost of a half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars in just a very short time period with no quality of life whatsoever. And that has to be costing Medicare enormous uh, sums of money. So knowing when uh, to pull the plug uh, seems to me to be a rather uh, important issue. Well, the question then of when to pull the plug, which is a good dramatic way of, <laughs> of uh, defining the decisional issue, uh, is something we need to discuss a little further. And whether there are significant uh, struggles over that very question, which have shaped up and are being waged even as we speak. Uh, we're about to pause for a quick update on the evening's news, and then we'll return to that. Uh, also, we will shortly be on to the telephones. We invite your calls and your email. The phone number 5917200. The lines are now open and available to you. The email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. Also instantly available to you. And we will return to Messrs. Bronner, Hauser, and Olshansky. And it is time to once again invite telephone calls. Uh, we will be on to the phones in just about 10 minutes, I would think. Any question you want to raise concerning uh, the aging process and medical and psychological perspectives pertaining thereunto, uh, now is the time to give us a call. Uh, the phone number is, as ever, 591-7200. 591-7200. If uh, you are listening to us over the Internet at some great distance, say, on either coast or, for that matter, in uh, Sydney, Australia, where we have a number of listeners, I believe, or if you're up very early in uh, Berlin or Prague and want to get in on this conversation, the best way to pose your question would be via email. The email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591 7200. Get those calls in right now. We'll be with you, as I said a moment ago, in just about 10 minutes. The question of whether one goes on trying to extend life beyond the point of no return, virtually, is, I suppose, an old question. It must have been asked by Galen and Hippocrates, for all I know. Yeah, I think it's an, an age-old question, the search for the fountain of youth. Um, taking it back to what, what we were talking about in terms of, you know, when to... Um, stop giving people aggressive care and being able to figure out when you've reached that point of no return I think um, is something that we strive to be able to do in, in a better way but prognosticating um, um, is is something that's it's an art and it's it's not it's it's not infallible well and we were having this conversation during the break one of our colleagues uh, has written a book on this very effort to try to prognosticate much more accurately the time of death based on given information when, when patients come in. And, of course, if you knew that death was going to occur in, in five or, or ten days, then decisions might be fundamentally different than if you really don't know when end of life uh, end of life. Which colleague occur. is that? This is a Nicholas Christakis, who used to be at the University of Chicago. Yeah. He's now at Harvard. And, uh, and what, what variables does he put into his equation to do that prediction? Um, actually, do, do you remember what, what he was looking at? I think he, he looked at just what happened. Is, is he, he followed people and saw what, when they died. Um, 
and, and, and try to figure out what, what were the clues that would have um, told you. But, I, you know, I think it's for certain diseases, we're, we're much better at it, you know, certain cancers. Uh-huh. Um, but things, uh, disease like dementia, especially, it, we're, it's much more difficult because there's such a much more variable um, but isn't, outcome. Isn't the decision in part made when a decision is made to send someone to hospice? That the, isn't the presumption is at that point that that death is going to occur within a given time period? I don't know what that is. Six months. Six months? Yeah. So, so whatever that decision, I mean, there has to be some set of criteria used to make the decision to put someone into hospice. Right, right. So, so there are sets of criteria that depend on the um, some different lab criteria. There are different physiologic criteria. There are different criteria based on functional status. But even at their best, they give us ideas of populations of patients. And... It's not unusual for hospice patients to perhaps change their mind and perhaps say, well, I thought that I just wanted care focused on comfort, and now I might want chemotherapy for this cancer, or now I might want to be hospitalized. And I think we're having a growing realization in in the hospice movement and in palliative care in general, which is the more general term for, again, care directed at people's symptoms and quality of life, that people don't necessarily divide into an either-or situation. In other words, they don't necessarily say, I want everything done or I want nothing done. That's an artificial distinction that I think has unfortunately not served people that well. Right, and at, at the University of Chicago, I think we're, we're, we're realizing that as well. And so we try many times to include palli- palliation along with active treatment of, of problems. And so we're doing both things at the same time. It's not either-or, as Josh was saying. What, what's the view these days in another area of your general realm of concern, namely um, uh, to enrich the lives of those who've grown old and otherwise feel somewhat burdened by the death of others around them or by some reduction in their powers, but are not suffering from a killer disease that will wipe them out in a predictable short time? Uh, what's done to enrich the lives or what kind of advice or what programs of enrichment make sense for those who are into their mid-80s and beyond and uh, still have intrinsically fairly decent health but face the, po- the possibility of a kind of depressive decline because of the burdens of old age. Well, I think um, one, I think, very common affliction of, of old age, um, but not just of old age, of young age as well, is the affliction of isolation and of yes, loneliness. Of course. And I think that there are some um, wonderful programs. There was one that I was just at earlier today called the Council for Jewish Elderly that are mm. day programs where people who are elderly, some of whom have mild dementia, some of whom have moderate dementia, some of whom don't have any dementia at all, and some of whom have some physical limitations, but some of whom have no physical limitations at all, can come together, can engage in different group activities and different exercise activities and different cognitive activities. Um, and these, as I said, are, are day programs that people live on their own at home or with a fa- their families um, and then come together during the day. And they are tremendously enriching for the people who are in them as well as for the people who care for them. You know, I have an interesting story. My, my father is about to turn 90 in December. And several years ago, uh, I recommended that he contact his physician and get specific instructions on whether it was okay to begin an exercise program designed to uh, essentially resistance exercises, lifting weights, and so forth. He did so, and actually, as soon as he went on this program of lifting weights, resistance exercises, 
he felt better immediately. And I mean the benefits were within 24 hours. And this was a program begun in somebody who was in his mid-80s. So there's no question that you can improve the quality of the time that you have by altering your lifestyle no matter what age you are. Yeah, I think there's good data to support that as well. That exercise, even for people in their in their into their 90s, is still has beneficial effects. Um, I think what Josh brings up a good point about isolation. Um, I'm involved in in uh, with a retirement community at Montgomery Place, and um, I think a lot of very vibrant people, older people, have come together in a community. Many of them. Uh, Retired professors at the University of Chicago. Right. Yeah, and they've created uh, you know uh, amazing programs, um, you know music, arts, um, literature, um, and great committees too, um, which discuss you know you know their lives in in very real terms. And and I think it's it gives them um, a great place to um, really um, enjoy. Well, you know, you realize that there are hospitals in Florida that I've been into that are run entirely by retired physicians. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely remarkable program. So, uh, no, and I know you guys are way too young for this, but someplace for you to go when you go to retire, you can move down to Florida and continue working. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's not retiring. <laughs> but so much might just be an attitude. Oliver Wendell Holmes says, old age is 15 years older than I am. Oh, yeah. I think that's an interesting perspective because I think it, it does change so much as you're getting older. I mean, um, and it's only an older person, I think, who could really really starts understanding that you know when you see the when you see people when they're younger mm -hmm. and and you could see that they're looking at you like you're older um, but you know that you're not that old actually and it's what age is one of those things that's just so relative you know and it's really where you've been and where you're going I think that really determines a lot of that you you all I'm sure know some really old people who don't realize that they're really old and still maintain interesting uh, active lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would have to say, by far, the smartest people, the most, the most interesting people I've run into, yeah. have been well into their 80s, 90s. Uh, I haven't met too many in in their hundreds, but but I mean, and many of the researchers in the field of aging are in their 70s and 80s. Uh -huh. But you know, Bob Butler from the International Longevity Center. Is he still around? Oh, still of course, work. he's as sharp as ever. He was at the. Uh, well, he, he, the he National Institutes of Health. Yeah. He was, I think, the, he was the, he started, founding he was director. A, yeah, yeah, NIA National Institute. Right, he's of still, aging. you know, as as active as ever. And these individuals, I think, uh, are a classic demonstration that that when you make it to these ages with your mind and your body functioning uh, well, that you can do remarkable things. Is it possible that the, there that correlation might be a con there's a, a hidden causality there? That causality may be that having interesting work that really invests and involves you sustains you against the ravages of age well I, I think there's there's data now that's coming out in terms of um, people who have you know um, interesting jobs and who who stay very active intellectually may actually put off or or prevent the onset of dementia I mean that's, mm -hmm. that's or they can compensate more effectively with the problems of having it. right so they don't manifest clinical dementia as early as somebody else would who had this similar um, pathology before we stop for some commercials and then on to the phones uh, are there significant differences in longevity um, across 
the world? Are there some nations or some peoples who live longer? I remember an ad campaign years ago for some brand of yogurt. Do you remember it? Yeah. And yeah. Some, and well, I won't was, mention the brand, but yes. Whatever it was. But it was <laughs> dealing Russians, with people yeah. in some, some place in the Caucasus, I guess, yes, who yeah. supposedly all lived beyond the centenarian yes, mark. Yes, yes. And it was because they were eating yogurt. Of course. Well, you know, they, it, what's an interesting, interesting story is they went and interviewed some of these individuals. They asked them how old they were. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, for example, someone would say, I'm, a, I'm 110, and they would go back five years later, and they would be 120. They <laughs> 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 so told you that there were problems with the way in which, uh, in which these ages were measured. But having so said are, that, there are there, there some Shangri-La pockets in the world where people live much longer than other than Yes, I wouldn't call the them Shangri-La, but I would, there are places, Okinawa, Japan, for uh -huh. example, Sardinia. Uh, no, parts of Nova Scotia, there, uh, even parts of the U.S. There are places where, where, where there are, seem to be pockets of extremely long-lived people. And I, I know that there's an effort to, for some people to go there and you know, collect the water and sell it somewhere <laughs> else. There's likely to be a very strong genetic influence uh, uh, with regard Rather to Rather than a lifestyle. Years. Uh, variability, which is the key to it. In, in uh, Sardinia, I believe they actually identified a specific gene that contributes to the risk of heart disease. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know what's going on in Okinawa. It might be reduced caloric intake uh, in, o in this Okinawa population. But what's interesting about Okinawa is the young people in Okinawa, which you know they now eat white potatoes and white rice and McDonald's, uh, are extraordinarily obese. And so it's likely that while we've seen this large increase in life expectancy, we have this pocket of very long-lived people, it may disappear. Mm -hmm. There was a fellow, he had a University of Chicago medical degree that we worked out in one of the universities on the West Coast. You will maybe know his name. I just don't remember it, though. He was on this program once years ago who had a theory that underfeeding uh, was the key right. to longevity. Roy Walford. Walford, it's, exactly. Yeah, yeah, called caloric uh, uh, caloric restriction. And he did it with mice, and he underfed those mice, and they lived longer than mice usually do. Yeah, that's been replicated. Well, it's been yeah. demonstrated for a long time. The only thing is, is that you have to be careful here because what, you, what you're comparing are uh, animals that are fed less with those that are actually fed ad libitum, unlimited quantities, mm -hmm. sort of like us. Right. Uh, and when you're comparing these. These, these animals that eat less by comparison to those that are gluttonous, you're demonstrating more the, the detrimental effect yeah. of obesity or gluttonous lifestyle. Well, Walford himself was on this program probably a good 15 years ago, and he looked awfully healthy. Uh, he was then a man, I guess, in his early 60s or something. Uh, and uh, he was on the same sort of diet. He was underfeeding himself. Uh, but it was rather striking and rather... Uh, Disturbing to note a few years ago that he died at the age of 75 mm. from ALS. Though it wasn't uh, from uh, it, it wasn't from anything associated with his caloric intake or he had ALS. He had ALS. Uh -huh. And it might have been associated with his stint in the biosphere, as I understand it. So yes, that was another adventure of his. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, he was he was a very interesting character, and there's an entire you, society. You knew him, I gather, did you? I, I had I've met him. I didn't yeah. didn't, didn't know him. Uh, in great detail, but clearly I was familiar with the whole notion of caloric restriction, mm -hmm. and, and of course most everyone would benefit uh, a lot if we reduced our caloric intake, not necessarily because it would alter the aging process, but because it would reduce the risk of a wide variety of diseases that are associated with carrying extra pounds. Now gentlemen, here's the plan. It's time to pause for another round of commercials, then right on to the phones. Uh, looking at the board, I see there's one line available at the moment. 
But if you're trying to reach us, 5917200, and hit the busy signal, don't be totally discouraged. The proper strategy, of course, is to call again right after we say goodnight to some prior caller. 5917200, a few lines are available at this moment. And if you want to reach us via email, that's extension720 at tribune.com. And we'll be directly with you after this. song needs to be updated. It's when I'm 94. <laughs> right. 84, 94. Now, right? How old is Sir Paul now? I don't know. Well, he's, he's gotta... only two Beatles survive, is that right? Uh, yeah. Yes. And Sir Paul, he's in his early he's 70s, his... I, I would think. He's the no, one who should no, be updating this. He's, he's the one who should be updating this. Oh, uh, yeah, he yeah. should, yeah. It's a charming song. Yes. What is, what, what is the point up that is of serious import in terms of aging? The song itself. Does it contain any wisdom about aging? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the question of, you know, how you value people as they get older, you know, will you still love me? Yeah. Um, Points up the need for continued uh, human intimacy. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah. but the key is 64. I mean, my God, 64 <laughs> is young. Well, how old was he when he wrote it? I don't know, but it's 20-something. Well, 20 20 20 yeah. 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 you know, now that I listen to that song, yeah. and I'm 51, it's, uh -huh. that, they were, it was wrong. <laughs> now, speaking of numbers, our phone number is 591-7200, and we go to the calls. We'll stay with them and with the email for the rest of the evening. Here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good evening. Um, when I was 18, I thought 64 was old. I'm 55 now. It's not old. No. <laughs> but uh, as a man, uh, well, my family goes back, uh, I've at least a genealogy that shows that at least five generations have lived into their 90s, going back into the mid-18th century. So I suppose that means that I'm doomed to you know, live a long life. And the area, the thing that really concerns me is my father died last year in his 90th year uh, of Alzheimer's. And I also have an aunt who died um, about a year ago, also of Alzheimer's. What good does it do to keep your body alive if your mind is dead and, or, you know, in essence, dead? And uh, what can you do to keep your mind 
healthy so you can either delay or forestall you know uh, that kind of debilitating uh, effect well I, I think in terms of keeping your body healthy um, uh, keeping your blood pressure low keeping your cholesterol low have been shown to um, decrease the incidence of uh, strokes and um, uh, mitigate the uh, the effects of uh, Alzheimer's disease um, in terms of uh, possibly postponing or preventing uh, Alzheimer's. Um, people have been talking about uh, staying active intellectually as being uh, a possible, um, a, as as possibly um, uh, preventing or at least um, making the age of onset later. And so, hopefully, uh, you you won't experience it. Is, is Alzheimer's also hereditary? It is, but uh, much less so um, in the type that is a late uh, age onset. So if you have lots of relatives who develop it in their 40s and 50s, um, then there's a much more there's a higher um, um, genetic um, uh, connection. But in in people who develop it uh, late, uh, like in your family, it's, yeah, like it's much lower. 80, about 80 yeah. or 89. Yeah, it's much lower genetic uh, link. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Glad we've heard from you. Maggie Burnt has either. Uh, leaped to uh, uh, to Google to get the information, or she has it stored in her very, very well-informed uh, cranium. But the news is that Paul McCartney is, at the moment, 63. <laughs> <laughs> How <laughs> perfect. So he's one he's, year he's away. He's got one year until he turns yeah. old. 591-7200 is our number. Some lines are available. If you've been trying to reach us, try again. You may very well get through on 591-7200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, I have uh, had this conversation with a friend of mine about the fact that the people that are now in their 80s, 90s, and 100s are a one-time phenomenon because when they were young, they were eating pretty healthy and unprocessed food, and they've also just, uh, by luck, uh, come into their agedness when we've had some very sophisticated medical advances and that the people that are now in their 50s, since they always had processed food, some of which we now know have been dangerous, might not inevitably live longer than their parents. I'd love to hear the responses to that. And so you shall. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's a very uh, interesting hypothesis. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that if you look at the uh, risk of death of those who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s today, it's actually lower, uh, in some cases significantly lower, than it was for previous generations who were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I don't think this is the golden cohort. Uh, I think that we're going to see many more generations of people make it out uh, into their 80s and 90s. And remember, the baby boomers, there are so many of us that the numbers are actually going to swell uh, no matter what. In the UK, they refer to this this particular group that's now making it out to older ages as the golden cohort. For some reason, their death rates are declining, uh, are, are significantly lower than previous generations. So I don't think that's going to happen. What, what's the prediction based upon the passage through the chronological sequence of the baby boomers? Uh, how many people over 65 will we have? say, in 15 or 20 years. Oh, goodness. I, I Honestly, I don't have those numbers at my fingertips. I've seen a projection saying that in some 10 or 15 years, 20% of, of the American population will be over 65. 
perhaps 25 percent. Uh, 25 Yes, it's going to be very, very large and right. and significantly greater than was anticipated by the Social Security. That's one of the reasons for the Social Security yes. uh, crisis, isn't it? Yeah, and the largest growing cohort will be the people who are over 85. I mean, those are the ones that are growing. Oh. Just to get back to the caller, you know, the question of processed versus uh, non-processed food. I mean, if you're eating a lot of fatty food, whether it's processed or not, um, it's not going to be good for you in the long term. So, but it, but actually, the caller is, I, I think, has touched upon a very important issue because we we published an article in the in the New England Journal in the spring of this year, suggesting that today's younger generation, today's children, may in fact live shorter and less healthy lives than their parents' generation for the first time in an era because, because of changes in diet, dramatic increases in childhood obesity uh -huh, just in right. the last couple yeah. of decades. Mm -hmm. So she may be right for, for today's, young, today's children. There's a guy over at the University of Chicago in the political science department of all places who just done a book saying that the, uh, that the warnings about an obesity epidemic are vastly overdone and so all of this has a secret political purpose and... Uh, I don't. I haven't read the book yet, but we're having him on the program together with somebody from nutrition or from some relevant area uh, over at the university medical school to debate this matter. Yeah. You nod as if you encountered this view already. Well, yeah, I, I, I saw the review of his book. I, I think you just need to look, look around when you're just walking down the street to know that obesity really yeah. is an obesity epidemic, and <laughs> we're in it. Well, the statistics are unambiguous. There is no question that there is an obesity epidemic and that it has grown worse, and that it is likely to get worse. It could be that this fellow's argument is, yes, there's more obesity, but there's no real demonstration that obesity reduces longevity. There is a real demonstration that obesity reduces longevity. There's no question. I would think so, yes. You yeah. can look at the, the risk of death for those who, are, who have a much higher body mass index relative to those who have a lower body mass index. There are significant differences in the, age, in the risk of death by BMI, so there's no question. I think where he may have... Where, where there may be an issue is when there's a body mass index of between 25 and 30, where people are carrying extra weight. And, we, we, you know, people have thought for a long time that that extra weight was a problem. That may not be. That relates, interestingly, to an email I've got in front of me, which I want to read to you. I would appreciate an opinion on gravity, as it may relate to aging. A long time ago, I read that the ordinary gravitational pull of the Earth has an effect on the aging process. Heavier persons die earlier than lighter ones because... The gravitational draw on them is stronger. Persons who could live on the moon, where gravity is far less or almost non-existent, would live much longer. Older persons on Earth die because they've experienced the gravitational pull for a longer while than younger persons. This may sound like a silly question, but it was once looked upon with some respect by a noted biochemist slash historian whose name, I'm sorry, I have forgotten. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Though I think if you if you see the astronauts after they come down, you know, from outer space, you know, and they can barely walk and they've developed severe osteoporosis, mm -hmm. I think uh, lack of gravity is really not that healthful for people. You get muscle atrophy and your yeah. bones decalcify because they're not loaded. So well, plus, uh, you know, if you look at other species, for example, whales aren't exactly facing any problems associated with gravity. Uh, uh, and they're li living for, oh, wait, maybe this supports the hypothesis. Right. Yes. They're living for 200 they years. In water. Uh, <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, it, it, you, you might as well be counting heartbeats. I mean, that's, yeah. that sounds like an, a very old uh, philosophy that, uh, you know, that people have adhered to. I mean, I, I know of older individuals, uh, even one of my relatives who, 
who takes gauze uh, and squirts WD-40 on it and wraps wraps it around his knees, thinking that it's actually going to soak in and make his knees work better. Oh, yeah, we see that. It's what is WD-40? That, oil. It's an oil. A, yeah, it's a lubricant. <laughs> it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> uh, we're late for some commercials. Take care of those, then right back to the phones. 591-7200. And directly back to the phones. 591-7200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Are you there? Good evening. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Um, yes, ma'am. I have a question. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies, you, you were bringing up the point that low blood pressure and low cholesterol, and the uh, pharmaceuticals uh, are made, using drugs, a lot of part. I think they're aiding in the whole fight against those two things. In the long run, then, though, what does it do to the human being anyway? Well, very good question. Far, we, are, we are indeed a pharmaceutical... We are a drug-taking society in the sense that pharmaceuticals are very heavily employed and he very heavily prescribed. And I'm thinking about a person's organs, because when I watch these sure. commercials, it always says liver damage, et cetera, et cetera, 20, Yeah, they years warn you about all the, all the side effects. Yeah. Let's turn to the two physicians, and for that matter, to the concerned Ph.D. as well. I'll ask him first, as a matter of fact, Jay Olchansky. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> the pharmaceutical question. I, you know, I mean, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, you're 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 infusing the body with pharmaceuticals. You're increasing the quantity that we take over the passage of time. But you know, many of these pharmaceuticals are 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 influencing us in positive ways. And I, I know that there's a discussion of this polypill. I, I'm I don't know if you've heard What's of this. What's a polypill? Poly you guys have heard of this? This is a combination aspirin and statin and a whole series of things. Mm -hmm. I've even heard that there's a mention that they're going to try to put it in the water. To do what? What, what is it supposed to do dramatically for reduce the risk of heart disease and they're suggesting that it, everybody take it and even young people take it as a way to dramatically reduce the risk of heart disease throughout life. I don't know. Are they actually suggesting you can eliminate heart disease with this polypill? No. Uh, I mean, I think they're suggesting that it, it can be reduced. I think that the more that we've looked at the effects of high cholesterol, the more that we've looked at the benefits of aspirin, for example, in people who have coronary artery disease, mm -hmm. the earlier we've seen it of benefit. We don't know if it's a benefit in people who are children and who uh, sort of that level. But the statins and are for cholesterol reduction, right? That, that's correct. Um, I think that the, the Don't they have side effects? Don't they have some known side effects? So they do have some known side effects. They can damage one's liver. They can damage yeah. one's muscles. Um, those things can be monitored. I think the caller is right that a lot of medications have side effects and they're important to think about and uh, to consider sort of the risks and the well, benefits, I, and many elderly people are on many different medications. But I can't see them putting, in the putting them in the community water supply. No, I don't think that's... No, uh, we're, we're, we're far from that. We're Good. far from there yet. <laughs> I think it's it's a matter of balancing the benefits versus the risks of any of any pill that you take, mm -hmm. and I think that needs to be considered individually for each patient. Um, I, we have good studies that show these medicines help um, people and that the risks that the, the burdens or uh, side effects that they experience are uh, low enough that it's worth exposing a large population to. But I think what's really important is that we continue to monitor these drugs. And one of the problems in the country today, I think, is that there isn't a lot of post-market uh, monitoring that's done in any sort of systematic way because the government just isn't that interested in, in it at the present time. And so we have good initial studies that show that these drugs work in large studies that show that they, they are efficacious, but those are done for a limited amount of time on a limited number of people. And I think it's, you know, the caller brings up an important point. We need to continue to monitor these drugs to make sure that they're still, you know, working as well as they are. Um, and so we don't have another experience like we saw with Via. 
stocks, which was only in post-marketing um, that we did find that it, you know, it doubled the risk of a stroke. Um, there are something else. When you speak of Vioxx, I always think of that other thing. What's the one that's supposed to be for erectile dysfunction? That's Viagra. Viagra. And uh, when that was issued, all sorts of people oh, were, both v. went for it. Yeah, they're both V. They have very different uh, utility, obviously. But Viagra <laughs> killed a number of people because they had not uh, yet examined or not yet publicized the finding that, um, what was it? Nitrates. People who were taking nitrates for uh, cardiological problems uh, could have, uh, could bring on a heart attack. Yeah. By taking the Viagra. Right. And that was not publicized when Viagra was first. Well, I don't, I don't think they knew it early on. It yeah. was only later, you know, in, in the post-marketing that, that that became an important factor. There's such a rush to drugs in this society. It's so pharmaceutically obsessed, and there's so much money, I guess, in pharmaceuticals, that I would think very often there are dangers of that sort. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, there are significant pressures to bring drugs to market, and that, that happens often with a lot of thorough studies, but sometimes without. Vioxx is one mm -hmm. example. There have been a number of diabetes medications that have been taken off the market um, because of uh, one problems. One remembers the great thalidomide scandal many, mm -hmm. many years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And, and people are concerned, frankly, about the, the strength of the FDA in this, you know, mm -hmm. uh, especially under the current administration in terms of um, losing some of its um, independence. Uh, many of the drug trials that are done now are sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry, and they're the ones who actually pay the money to the FDA, and yeah. so the relationships there have become sort of uh, uh, questionable. You know, there's, there's an exhibit at the British Museum uh, in London where they followed individuals from birth to death, and they added up all of the injections and the pills that they took throughout their entire life, everything. Mm -hmm. And it was something like 18 to 20,000 pills during the course of a single life uh, for individuals who were ma making it out into their 70s and 80s, and they laid them out all, all on a table. It was <laughs> remarkable mm -hmm. to see what we put on our bodies. Hmm. Of course, they did live a very long life, remember. Right? That's in the British Museum at the moment? Yes. Just go past the Rosetta Stone and you'll find it. <laughs> Take a left at the Rosetta Stone. Yeah. Um, there are now some spaces available on our board. If you've been trying to reach us, do make another try on 5917200. Let me read you an email. Great show with truly universal appeal. We thank the listener for that comment. And then he goes on. I firmly believe that the aging process can be slowed down by just thinking young. Keeping an active and inquisitive mind makes life interesting and fun no matter what the calendar says. I secretly believe I am immortal, which takes off a lot of the pressure. If it turns out I was wrong, I may suffer a brief disappointment at the end, but until then, life was pretty good. I've known people in their 30s who seem much older than some people I've known in their 80s. It's all about attitude. Well, that's... A common viewpoint, I guess. Oh, I think that's really true. I, I think the older you get, the less your age really is a, a sort of describes who you are, and and it's all the other things that become much more important. Um, and so, um, believing that you can do something and and staying vigorous and involved, I think, really does keep you. Um, vigorous and involved. Um, you know, I, not necessarily young, um, but I don't see young as being all that great. I mean, you can be old. I don't, I don't see that as a negative term. Especially. I, I, something I quoted just last night, because we were talking about life after death, 
uh, with a young woman who's done a very interesting book examining those who are trying to research in that direction. But it occurred to me to quote something I've always loved. I got it from a congressman uh, down in Louisiana who quoted Governor Earl Long, Huey Long's brother, who used to say often in his political speeches, when I die, if I die, bury me in Louisiana so I can go on enjoying the political life. But the, the concept of when I die, if I die, that's very heartening. Well, I, you know, the idea that uh, that we can somehow influence our duration of life by... Uh, by attitude. By attitude. I mean, that's a... That idea has been around for a long oh, time. Sure. It was very. It was uh, popularized recently by uh, Deepak Chopra in his in mm -hmm. one of his books, "Grow Younger, Live Longer," something like that, where he was basically arguing that the only reason we age was because we believe we're going to age, and if we don't believe we're going to age, we won't. Uh, of course, tell that to all of the animals that are aging that probably aren't contemplating their own mortality, <laughs> and they all seem to be aging and dying as well. So I'm not sure I buy into that line of reasoning. But, but the but the person who wrote that email was really talking about a philosophical right. argument, and I couldn't agree more. We go back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. I thoroughly enjoy your programs every night. Uh, that I have to say before I start with my question. My question is uh, very simple. Uh, are there any vitamins that could help us in the aging process, any individual uh, vitamins, uh, pills that uh, may add to our longevity? <laughs> Why the sudden silence? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think there's been any specific vitamin combinations that have been found to increase longevity. I think the data shows that if you know you eat a well-balanced diet that um, you really don't need to take um, vitamins, though I think a lot of people who you know in, would probably disagree with that. Well, the problem with, with longevity studies where the endpoint is added significantly, uh, significant added life is that these studies are extraordinarily difficult to do because they take a very long time. For example, yeah. if somebody claimed that I, you know, they had a pill that could make you live 50 years longer. You have to ask the question: How how do they know that? Uh, the only way you could you could know the answer to that is to conduct a study and follow individuals for a time period and see if they actually live 50 years longer than those who don't. And so those studies aren't conducted. We don't know whether or not uh, there's anything that we can take that will dramatically uh, extend mm. duration of life. I wish there was. All right. Thanks to the caller, and we pause for a last. Quick round of commercials, then right back to more calls on 591-7200. With that, we go back to the phones. 591-7200, and you are next on the air. Good evening. Hi, I love your show. Oh, thank you. Discussion of longevity in intrigues me. Both my parents lived to be 82, both died of heart attacks, both started smoking and drinking as teenagers. My mother, when she was 13... And for did, most of my life, she was at least 100 pounds overweight. Did they go on smoking and drinking till 82? Uh-huh. My father finally stopped uh, drinking, I think, in his 60s when it started giving him headaches. And he went from booze to donuts. And my mother became diabetic and uh, would drink at 30s and stuff. But nothing ever stopped either one of them. Hmm. They ate anything that wasn't nailed down. They got <laughs> cholesterol. It just didn't matter. Well, that, so I kind of think it's a crapshoot. Well, that's a testament, actually, to the remarkable uh, functioning of the human body. I mean, if it's 100 pounds overweight 
and you're smoking and you're drinking uh, and you live to 80. It's absolutely remarkable. You know, the, the longest-lived person, uh, her name was Jeanne Calmon. She lived 122 and a half from southern France. She smoked for 100 years. And ate nothing but chocolate just now. <laughs> and, drink, and drink wine. Yeah, I remember that interview. Bartenders. Yeah. <laughs> the tavern, and both of them worked 12-hour shifts, and not only were they smoking, they were smoking what everybody else was smoking. But the question, of course, is if they hadn't smoked and drunk as much as they did, might they have lived uh, 10 or 15 years longer? Oh, yeah. They, convinced of that. Oh, yeah, they probably would have. Um, and... I think also people have different sort of genetic predispositions to, um, you know, to the effects of obesity and, um, you know, cigarette smoking, too. So um, it's going to be different, have different effects in different people. Well, Matt, we thank you very much for the call. And I hope you're not smoking and drinking the way they did. Got it. <laughs> I'm trying to be healthy. Good. Good. Thank you so much for the call. And on to another on 591-7200. Good evening. Uh, good evening. I just was wondering uh, what the opinions of your guests would be uh, concerning an emergency room doctor's personal feelings and uh, what their uh, what their choices might be if they have a, a do not resuscitate order that comes in and do they if their if their religion or their morals are and they take the the vow of um, of whatever the doctors take the, that that. Yeah, thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah, and um, yeah. So, is it their personal prerogative to just go ahead and resuscitate the person, regardless of what their legal paperwork says, due to their own personal feelings, or are they required um, to follow whatever legal paperwork there is? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think in an emergency room, it's a, it's difficult. You know, when somebody comes in, you don't know them. I think you know it, this comes up in the hospital where patients, you know, re, you know, state their desires. Everybody knows them, and and a doctor may feel that you know they don't they can't follow those wishes because perhaps of their religious or moral values. I think then it becomes incumbent on that doctor to find another doctor who can uh, follow the wishes of that patient. Our thanks to that caller. Let's go quickly. Time being short. To the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, good evening. I just had a question. It's kind of the opposite of what the woman two callers ago said about her parents eating and drinking whatever they want and they lived alone. What if you're overly conscientious? I, you know, I don't care about living long if I don't bring my mind along with me, with my body. And I see a lot of these over-the-counter things for brain boosters, brain memory enhancers. Uh, are those gimmicks or are those some things that things that really should be looked at? You know, am I gullible to look at those or mm -hmm. am I being uh, conscientious. I guess I'm looking for some direction on this. A very valuable question. We've, we used to have an ad that would pop up on this program, as it did on many other programs around town, for some such uh, a preparation which would boost your mentality or make you more alert or something. I was really very bothered by that, being in real life a psychologist who has some thought uh, and perhaps even some knowledge about what is the key to intelligent, intellectual functioning. And I had some doubts, but I've talked more recently with um, with neurologists and uh, bio psychiatry types who suggest to me that there may be something that can increase uh, uh, sort of synaptic activity in a way that might make a difference for mental acuity. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, most of the over-the-counter preparations have not been proved to increase improve uh, cognitive ability, in part because the testing just hasn't been done, and, and in part 
I think that's that's a big part of it. And um, if tests have been done, they're they're not available widely available. So uh, a lot of these these products remain untested. Um, so it's it's a matter of uh, faith. And and uh, frankly, um, I wouldn't have that much faith in that. That said, um, you know, ginkgo biloba for a long time was um, you know pushed by health food stores. And, and finally, when we did test it, we found that it actually did help a little bit for well, people with cognitive impairment. What is it? Ginkgo. Yeah. It's chemically it, speaking, or I don't think we know what it is chemically speaking. Um, I don't know what it is. And it comes from a tree, right? Yeah, it's like the ginkgo tree. tree yeah. yeah. Um, it's the you know it's the, the leaf extract. I right. Think. It's an extract from the tree, and I think it's probably several different chemicals, and it has been shown to modestly Im improve people's cognitive ability um, who had uh, dementia. So. Um, but it, again, it's a very modest improvement. Yeah, and they're very expensive pills. You know, 100 tablets, $40. I mean, we're talking, you know, is this worthwhile? Is there a gain to be? It, it's never been shown to be uh, helpful for preventing the disease. Yeah, and it, as Dan said, we, they've actually done studies where they've compared different uh, things that are all called ginkgo, and they're, they're quite different products. So there's not a lot of standardization, and the, the benefits are, are fairly modest um, in terms of cognitive ability. Well, sir, thank you for the call. Well, thank you very Interesting much. Interesting question. Time is rather short. Uh, no time for other calls, so my apologies to those who are still on the line. Um, I'm curious about this. Uh, does this apply to all three of you only, or only to the two physicians? Uh, what is the consequence for you of working with old people close to death. Does it have, does it put any special challenges or any special burden upon you or is there a way of adapting to the presence of debility and oncoming death which uh, doesn't diminish but maybe even enhances your own life experience? I think it's uh, it's an amazing gift to, to be able to be with people at, at that kind of, at that time in their lives and to be able to, you know, help people um, uh, and their families during that incredible transition time, and and you know it's it's very powerful, and um, I you know it's 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 very hard, but I think it's it's something that's very rewarding. Yeah, I I would I would agree with Dan. I think that the things that I learn and gain and um, and hear from patients and their families are extremely valuable and and enlightening. And I think it gets back to something that Jay Olshansky said at the beginning that even that all of aging is not about decline. It's about, um, I think, incredible moments of, uh, of inspiration at times and of, uh, of wonderful connections um, between people and between patients and families and, and between their healthcare providers even. Well, I'll answer a related question. What have I learned in general? Mm -hmm. Perhaps the most important lesson is not uh, that length of life should be pursued, but that quality of life should be pursued. And if we live longer as a result, that should be considered the icing on the cake. An excellent final statement, I think, for the evening. And I thank you, Jay Olchansky, for that and for your participation. And similar thanks to Joshua Hauser, uh, who is in the Department of Medicine at Northwestern University's Bueller Center on Aging, and to Dr. Daniel Brauner, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago, where he is the director of the Geriatrics Fellowship Program. Uh, and uh, also, what's the name of the the particular center near the University of Chicago? McLean Center on Ethics. Yes. Oh, Montgomery Place. Uh, Montgomery, yes. Montgomery Place was yes. the one I was reaching for.